Whatever happens, I'm just glad we ruined Brett Kavanaugh's life. That was a tweet from Ariel Dumas, who apparently is a writer on The Colbert Show. She ended up deleting it. But I think it's pretty indicative of what was motivating what we just experienced over the past couple of weeks. Close at home from the Star Tribune, a Rosemont special education teacher has been placed on paid administrative leave after posting a tweet Saturday that appeared to call for the killing of new U.S. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The teacher, listed as an instructor at the Intermediate School District 917's Alliance Education Center, has since deleted her Twitter account, but her tweet was captured and shared by scores of users who said they reported it to the FBI and U.S. Secret Service. A spokesman for the FBI in Minneapolis said Monday that the Bureau was aware of the tweet, which read, So... Who's going to take one for the team and kill Kavanaugh? The Star Tribune is not naming the teacher because she has not been charged with a crime. In a statement on the district's website Monday morning, ISD 917 Superintendent Mark Zuzik confirmed the district received a complaint about an employee over the weekend and placed the employee on paid administrative leave pending the outcome of the investigation. So a couple of anecdotal examples of the unmitigated hatred and vitriol that remains festering on the left coming out of this horrendous process that we've all collectively as a nation experienced over the past couple of weeks. And I want to spend some time, you know, the the celebration, at least for me, the celebration did occur over the weekend, but it was bittersweet and it was brief. Because even though we've secured this victory, even though Brett Kavanaugh has been confirmed, and you know, let's let's focus a little bit on what the, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh achieved. It put a finger in the dam, a finger in the crack of the dam that the of the left trying to break through the integrity of our institutions, trying to undermine things like presumption of innocence due process, common decency, evidentiary procedure, right? Like little little things like actually having evidence to demonstrate that an accusation is correct before we assume that the person making it is a, quote, survivor, unquote. Little things like that. That's what was at stake. It was much more than just whether or not Brett Kavanaugh as an individual, as a person, gets to be on the Supreme Court. It was much more than just a job promotion, as the left tried to euphemistically refer to it. It was a question, it was calling into question our entire process, our entire jurisprudence in the United States of America and what it's going to be based on. Is it going to be based upon facts and reason and evidence? Or is it going to be based upon emotion and vitriol, and who's the loudest, and who can bring the most protesters. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up for you. 
our coverage from last week, if I do say so myself, was quite provocative. You might want to go back and check it out if you missed any shows, particularly uh, that I was. It was either Wednesday or Thursday when I went into detail as to why I've gone from never Trump in 2016 to purchasing and wearing a MAGA hat. It's sitting in the studio right now. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us this evening. You can also check us out on Facebook. Do a search for Closing Argument with Walter Hudson on Facebook. Like the page, if you don't mind, and set your notifications to be notified when we post things, when we go live and the like. So for the first segment this evening coming out of the weekend, I want to talk about, I want to kind of go through a debrief. And, you know, a, a, a briefing or a debriefing that's kind of military terminology. And I use that purposefully because we find ourselves in a martial style conflict. You know, we're not taken to the streets yet. There isn't violence in the streets. Uh, there's a little bit anti-fa and the like. But there isn't, a, there isn't a hot civil war going on just yet. But we most definitely find ourselves in a cold civil war. We de- most definitely find ourselves in circumstances whereby the left has declared their open intention to destroy conservatives, destroy anybody who doesn't agree with them. And I mean destroy. Like what they tried to do with Brett Kavanaugh was ruin his life completely and utterly, as pointed out by that tweet by Ariel Dumas, where she takes solace in the notion that the left ruined Brett Kavanaugh's life. You know, they they like the fact that they claimed a scalp here that this is going to be a stain on him for the rest of his days and on his family, lest we forget. It's not just him. He has a family as well. And so I think it's important to, you know, along with the celebration, along with being happy and grateful that this confirmation went through, to look at it retroactively and ask ourselves a question, what just happened? (laughs) What is it that we just experienced over the past couple of weeks? And what are the lessons that we must learn and apply? That's the important part. Apply. What lessons must we apply to the future? Because this is not the end of the war. This is one battle in an ongoing war. And there's one tactic in particular that I want to focus on this segment. And I think it's the chief tactic that was being employed throughout this whole process, particularly in the last couple of weeks, in, you know, with the, the accusation from Christine Blasey Ford, and the other accusations as well that came forward increasingly less credible as they went along. And that tactic is the weaponization of sympathy. The weaponization of sympathy. It goes a little something like this. This is the formula. This is how it works. Somebody comes forward with a story about something horrible that happened to them. And because you're a decent human being who is naturally empathetic towards your fellow human beings when you see them going through circumstances that are unfortunate or horrible or heinous, you feel sympathy towards them. And then the person or their representative pivots from that story, from that sympathy, to a prescription for policy or a prescription for a particular government action which has the effect of violating your rights or violating the rights of a class of people, or in this case, destroying a man's life with Brett Kavanaugh. 
And when you or Brett Kavanaugh or someone else objects to the pivot to a prescription for policy or a prescription for government action or the demonization, the character assassination of a human being, when you object to that, they say, aha, you lack sympathy. You lack compassion. You're not being sympathetic and compassionate to survivors. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this over the past couple of weeks. How many Twitter conversations I've been in with people. How many, how many callers into this show have made this point of, oh, you're just not, you're being too angry. You're not being very sympathetic. You know, Brett Kavanaugh, the criticism of Brett Kavanaugh himself in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing a couple Thursdays back at this point. The primary criticism was, oh, just his, his temperament. He was so angry, right? As if, you know, it was just any other day of the week. He was just walking in on a total, under totally normal circumstances and hadn't just been accused in front of the entire world of some of the most heinous acts known to man and had his guilt presumed by 49 Democratic senators. And this, this notion that, and, and the language too, we talked about this last week. Do you believe survivors? I believe survivors. We need to believe survivors. The choice of the word survivor skips the entire argument. It skips the entire point. Whether or not somebody actually is a survivor is the question at hand, and it's everything. That's the whole argument. That's the whole question. When you're trying to determine whether or not, when Christine Blasey Ford comes through and says, Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted me, and you refer to her as a survivor, you have presumed his guilt. That's intentional. And the, and the notion that his guilt is presumed, the notion that she is a survivor, is meant to provide her with moral authority that you are then expected to yield under, to wilt under. Because how dare you? How dare you call into question the story of a survivor? How dare you lack sympathy and compassion for somebody who survived such a heinous ordeal? Well, we don't know that an accuser, which is the proper terminology, we don't know that an accuser actually has endured an ordeal. And let's be clear about another thing. They're not asking for sympathy. Christine Blasey Ford didn't come forward asking for sympathy. She came forward asking to ruin a man's life. Now, the question as to whether or not his life ought to have been ruined, whether or not he deserved to have his life ruined, is one that was open, right? The accusation opened that question, but until it's established through evidence, until it's established beyond reasonable doubt, you don't get to treat him as though he's guilty and and you don't owe her sympathy as if it's true. Sympathy is something that you get to reserve until you know something has actually happened. Especially when there are plenty of circumstantial questions and reasons for doubt as to the veracity and credibility of the story. Such as Remembering with 100% confidence that Brett Kavanaugh is the guy who did something really terrible to me, but not remembering anything else about it, literally anything. Except for the people you think were there, all of whom say it didn't happen or that they can't recall it. Those are pretty dubious circumstances under which to presume 
that the guy is guilty and to presume that she is, in fact, a survivor. And this is a tactic that we need to start calling out and we need to call shenanigans just like Brett Kavanaugh did. We need to call shenanigans and we cannot let it stand. We cannot tolerate the weaponization of sympathy because if we do, it will never stop. If we allow the precedent whereby if somebody can come forward and claim that something happened to them and then we're expected to just drop everything, drop all reason, drop all investigation, drop all facts, drop all consideration of logic, and just through through sympathy, through a sympathetic gesture, accept whatever they say after that. Something really terrible happened to me. Here's a bill that'll fix it. Something really terrible happened to me. Vote for this person, or you're not sympathetic. Like, that's the argument. It's, and it's a ludicrous argument, and it cannot be allowed to stand. Let's talk to Hugh in Edina. Welcome to the program. Good evening. Evening. Um, you know, I, I was, I'm old enough that I was around, you know, I'm a little older than Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, the, the crazy thing is, is if you look at it on its face, here's an, an admitted, inexperienced 17-year-old male who goes into basically a makeout session with an inexperienced 15-year-old male. She said stop, and he did. Now, what's really interesting is among this is, you know, this is way before cell phones. You know, they, so getting home wasn't something that just happened. It was something that had to be arranged. And one would think that one would remember how that might have happened or that somebody there would have remembered that, you know, or yeah. just leaving early. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, the, there are different, and I appreciate the call, I appreciate the thoughts, Hugh. There are different criticisms that have been leveled or different avenues of criticism that have been leveled towards the account offered by Blasey Ford. And the the one that I find the weakest is this notion that because they were young, because they were kids, if this happened, it's somehow excusable. What Blasey Ford describes is not excusable if, in fact, it happened to any degree at all. Like, if Brett Kavanaugh actually had done what Blasey Ford described, then he would deserve our scorn. He would deserve to not be confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Problem is... There's absolutely no corroboration or evidence whatsoever to demonstrate that's true. And we cannot and must not presume or even act as if he is guilty of those things just because an accusation has been raised. This notion that, you know, it calls into question. It it, it just raises too many questions. So what? You look, if that's all it takes is to raise a question about a nominee and then they don't get to be confirmed, then get ready for every nominee on both sides of the aisle to be to have questions raised about them from now to the end of time. There has to be a standard. There has to be a process. There has to be some means by which we can sort out the BS from the truth. Turns out we have that process. It's called due process. It's called evidence. It's called Establishing Fact. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. com. And let's talk 
about respect for women while we're at it, right? Because, you know, one of the big narratives coming out of this weekend and out of this whole confirmation process with Brett Kavanaugh is that it demonstrates somehow, it somehow demonstrates a lack of respect for women. Now, this is fascinating to me because, as it turns out, there are a number of women senators, Republicans, who voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. There are a a significant portion of women in the general society, voters, who turned out for Donald Trump, who vote for Republicans, who caucus with Republicans, who are proud Republicans, and who support Brett Kavanaugh. And so it's odd to me that somebody would presume that they get to speak on behalf of all women and tell women what they must think, how they must feel, and what is actually in their interest, regardless of how they think and feel as individuals. That strikes me as being more than a little bit disrespectful. And all of that is coming from the left. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035-FM. 651-989-5855. From Newsweek, the headline of an op-ed from a Michelle Dauber and Linda Hirschman is Republicans just lost women for good. Now, just onto itself, the headline, again, is awfully presumptuous, right? Like, who, who are you, Michelle and Linda? Like, who elected you? Did, did women come together and nominate you to step forward and speak on their behalf and declare to the world that Republicans have lost you as a gender forever? I think not. They write, when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, he reportedly told an aide that the Democratic Party had lost the South for a generation. On September 27th, in a day-long nationally televised hearing on whether accused sexual abuser Brett Kavanaugh should be put on the Supreme Court of the United States, the Republicans lost the women. But a generation will look like a short sentence and a region like the South, a small setback in comparison to the 52% of voters in every congressional district who watched in horror and are now prepared to turn the Republicans out of office over it. What glorious arrogance. So they're literally speaking on behalf of all women here, right? 52% of voters, that, that's women that they're referring to, who watched in horror. Apparently they have a, a telepathic link to every other member of their gender and know exactly how they experienced watching those hearings Thursday before last. And they have declared that women as a gender, as a sex, aren't going to turn out for Republicans anymore and are actually fired up to kick them out. This is astounding to me. I would love to see their data. I would love to see their research, their polling. Oh, I'm sorry. This is just a rant. This is just an arrogant, bullying, matriarchal rant. Taking on having the audacity to speak on behalf of others because they share a demographic characteristic. This is like when people tell me what I'm supposed to think because I'm black, right? <laughs> Uh, and and that's the left. That's it, this is their the, how they police the culture. They police the culture by by telling you that you must think a certain way if you fit into a certain category in order to affect and advance their cultural and social agenda. There's another piece over at the New York Times, written in much the same mold by an Alexis Grinnell. Her headline is "White Women Come Get Your People." She writes, check out this first sentence. She writes, 
after a confirmation process where women all but slit their wrists, letting their stories of sexual trauma run like rivers of blood through the Capitol, the Senate still voted to confirm Judge Brett M. Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Now, think about, think about what that sentence, that one sentence conveys. It conveys what we talked about in the first segment, the weaponization of sympathy. The, the premise that she's operating under here in crafting this one sentence is that the mere telling of a story ought to have been enough to derail the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. And not even, look, she's not even talking about Christine Ford here, right? She's saying women, all but, women plural, all but slit their wrists, letting their stories of sexual trauma run like rivers of blood through the Capitol. So she's referring to, you know, the people who cornered, the women who cornered Jeff Flake in the elevator, the women who were banging outside the door of the Supreme Court. You know, anybody who came down to the Capitol with a story to tell about their sexual trauma. That that onto itself, the mere telling of a story and the sympathy that it's supposed to invoke is all the reason we needed to derail this confirmation. And the failure to do that, the failure to allow emotion and the weaponization of sympathy to affect policy, to affect a vote, to affect what is supposed to be a deliberate decision, the failure to do that is somehow a crime against women. And in this case, committed by other women. She continues, with the exception of Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, all the women in the Republican conference caved. I love that language. As if they there was actually some tension, right? Like as if as if they were actually sitting there thinking, you know, with the exception of Susan Collins. If they were they were actually sitting there thinking to myself, you know, I really I'm really hard pressed to decide whether or not I'd give in to the complete lack of substance that's being offered in argument against Brett Kavanaugh. Again, speaking on behalf of people who you're not, right? Speaking on behalf of Republican women as if they somehow have the inside track into what these women were thinking. These women, continuing again this op-ed, these women are gender traitors. To borrow a term from the dystopian TV series The Handmaid's Tale, They've made standing by the patriarchy a full-time job. You see the shaming that's taking place here? The women who support them show up at the Capitol wearing women for Kavanaugh t-shirts, but also probably tell their daughters to put on less revealing clothes when they go out. So, it's funny, because on the one hand, they have the audacity and the arrogance to speak on behalf of all women. And on the other hand... They obviously know they're not speaking for all women, right? Like, because you can't have it both ways. You can't both be like, well, women are on our side. And at the same time, condemn all the women who aren't, right? Like, you're lying about one or the other. And we know which one. It's obvious. What they're trying to do is they're trying to marginalize and minimize and demean and shame. Which is interesting because I thought that was sexist. I thought that was inappropriate and uncompassionate and unsympathetic. What about what about the sympathy for a wife who's watching her husband, who she loves and adores and has supported his entire life as he has led a, a, a life above reproach, reproach by all accounts, has had a great professional career with tons of accomplishments and has been beloved by virtually everyone who he's worked with, You'd have to 
drudge the earth to find people to say a negative thing about him. And that's what the Democrats did. And she has to sit there silently and watch as this man who she loves is dragged through the mud and his name is defamed and he's slandered and he's called, he's accused of some of the worst crimes known to man. And she has to sit there in the spotlight alongside him and take it. Where's the sympathy for that woman? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. I guess Brett Kavanaugh hired all female law clerks. They were just saying that during the bottom of the hour news break. And I wonder about those law clerks. Those women who were hired by Brett Kavanaugh, are they gender traitors as well, as was, written, as was written in the New York Times? Are they traitors to their gender? Are they traitors to women everywhere because they took a job with Brett Kavanaugh? Do they count? Do they matter? Are they part of the proverbial women, the rhetorical women that are claimed as, as a group that thinks one thought, that thinks one way, that has one set of values as defined by the left? Apparently not. Closing argument, my name's Walter Atson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Homeland takes those calls and produces the show. Let's talk to Jeff in South St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Good evening. Um, I, in my time of taking the time to watch two Senate hearings, one was on that uh, social experiment that the State Department did in Libya where four four people were killed and numerous others injured under Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And then um, the Kavanaugh hearings, and um, they both, you know, Hillary Clinton, they were like opposite sides of the same thing. Um, I, as appalled as I was at Hillary Clinton stating, at this point, what does it matter anymore? I almost wish that Brent Kavanaugh would have stated that because of all the BS that was being tossed at him. And uh, I think that we should find a way to um, requote Bill Clinton and his phrase of, you ought to put some ice on that thing, honey, because um, that kind of brings it all to bear in a real life. All right. I appreciate your thoughts, Jeff. Thank you for uh, calling into the program. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really have any criticisms of how Kavanaugh conducted himself in the hearing. In fact, I thought his performance was fantastic. He single-handedly saved his own nomination to the Supreme Court. I mean, he is the reason why he was confirmed. You know, I mean, you you can you credit Donald Trump with nominating him, of course. You can credit the senators with, you know, making some certain maneuvers at certain points, but there is no one person who who can take more credit for the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh than Brett Kavanaugh. So I think he did pretty well. The the one nit I will pick with him was how he tried to kind of backtrack it a little bit in the latter days. Last week, you know, he wrote an op-ed where he kind of walked back some of his, his rhetoric and apologized for his approach and some questions and what have you. And I understand why he did. I understand why he felt like he had to because you're trying to you're trying to get those final crucial swing votes and trying to provide uh, some some uh, plausibility, some cover for those senators to vote the way they properly ought to, but uh, be that as it may, 
what we need is what we got from him in that Senate Judiciary Committee hearing the Thursday before last. We need more moral condemnation of evil people engaged in evil tactics. And we need them to be called out. We need shenanigans to be called. We need to stop them from weaponizing sympathy, from pretending to care, pretending to have compassion for victims, because they don't. They don't care. Dianne Feinstein doesn't care one iota about Christine Blasey Ford. If she did, that she would have responded in July when she first found out about the story. She didn't, and we all know why. She knows why. You know why. Every Democrat and liberal listening knows why. And you, you have to be willfully ignorant to pretend that Dianne Feinstein or any of those Senate Democrats actually cares one iota about Christine Blasey Ford. They cared only about the utility that her story provided. Let's talk to Dick in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hi, I'm uh, 76 years old, live in Twin Cities, and been following this really closely, and my wife has been following it. She's never really followed that closely as I do, but she's, you know, we're political. I was a Democrat for many years. I voted for Clinton. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, after his uh, his character issues came about and saying he never had sex with that woman yeah. and what that occurred when that occurred his character came very true because it was proven from what her testimony was this uh, 19 year old girl that was an aide blah 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 so I kind of turned off at that point mm-hmm. All right, now we're watching this real closely and we're hearing these seeing these things the Democrats are doing it is so obvious to anybody, even with average intelligence, to look at what's involved here, and it's so obvious they would do anything, they being the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. um, they would do anything. They could, they could have nominated Jesus Christ himself if he yeah. was alive, yeah. and, and he would have never made it. And now they're pulling this, this deal from the gender attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not new, his hiring of women, because he had in his previous um, right. job out there had hired more majority women. Yep. So the gender traitor is a bunch of BS. But as being a Democrat all my life, my dad was a welder. He uh, totally a union guy, and, and, and we were Democratic all the way through. Uh, my kids are all up and gone, and I've got nine grandkids and my family, and we try to stay somewhat politically active as old as we are. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I just, I'm just viewing my wife's opinion. She's looking at this, and she so clearly sees what they're doing. Right. It's very easy for her to understand in her mind that this is like, you know, Christ himself would, 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 would have been chastised. There's no question about it. And that's what bothers me the most. And then they, they, they further than all this Feinstein and holding on to it for three months and waiting before the election, everything just points to any normal citizen with common sense right. can see where this is gone well, and, and where it's coming from. And now they're conveniently having a bunch of women being the majority of the knockers on the doors and jumping in elevators with guys and that. Yeah. That's obvious to me. I'm an old man and I'm not very smart anymore, you know? And, and, and if, if people can't see through that, um, 
my goodness, I feel bad for him. Well, they can, and it's reflected in the numbers. It's reflected in Donald Trump having a 50% approval rating during this whole right. fiasco. It's reflected in the, the enthusiasm right. index evening out between Republicans and Democrats, Republicans coming together, you know, the... the the uh, factions and fractures within the Republican coalition have healed suddenly as a result of this. And so, yes, everybody sees it. Everybody knows what's going on for the most partisan of the partisans on the left wing. I'm yeah. curious, Dick, as somebody who once was a Democrat, yeah. have you put much thought into what that party would have to do in order to get you back? Like the what? Democrats? What, yeah. Um. Basically, I don't think I ever could, unfortunately, because back when Obama came, I liked Obama a lot, mm -hmm. and I thought about voting for him. But I, I got really turned off by his religious advisor guy when they showed him to be a fanatical. Yeah, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. Yeah. Or Jeremy Wright. Whoever he was. Yeah, Jeffrey but, Wright's an actor. But Obama can talk. I mean, sure. he's one oh, yeah. of the best talkers. Listen. I've ever heard. I remember. Life. I remember when Obama gave his his that first big speech at the Democratic National Convention. Yeah. I think it was like 2006 or somewhere yeah. in that zone. Yeah. And at the and I liked him. Like I, I I knew that he was probably bad news, but yeah, the guy can give a speech and he's got a good demeanor and and he has a a he has a leadership style that yeah. un, until you dig beneath the surface and actually find out what he's all about. Yep. has an appeal and so i i was not at all so and i thought to myself listening to that speech this guy's going to be president of the united states someday well the yeah and you know the other thing i thought about it i wanted to vote for him from one standpoint to me what a reliever of racial tensions in our country so we thought right have a guy that was black <laughs> become president I, I was right but i i just couldn't do it yeah you know, I think back to, to Clinton and how he let us down, yeah. you know, with his immoral character. Right. You know, and, and so, yeah, that's, it's weird. And my dad was a staunch union guy. And union sure. guys, they, they, they want to, you know, Democrats, Democratic farmer labor that stood for. Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. another thing that turned me, just in conclusion here, that was back, I think it was around the Obama time, I read an article in one of the magazines, and they did a, a inventory of the wealth of all of the senators and mm -hmm. all of the uh, uh, House people, mm -hmm. and they mo monitored their wealth, and they totaled that out, and they had a big column showing all the senators, all of them, how much money they're worth in that deal. And what galled me then, when I seen that, and that's another reason I didn't vote for Obama, it so showed in there that you know the, the the general perception out there in in the in the world is Democrats are for the little guy and the poor right. and the impoverished, mm -hmm. and the Republicans are rich jerks yeah, right. that have all the money, right? Yeah, right. Okay. When I looked at that, and now those statistics were national statistics provided by the government, mm -hmm. and it showed that there was about a three or four million dollar difference between. In other words, the, the Democratic people in the House and the Senate were far richer, yeah. not, well, not far, depending, they all have millions. They had money, is, yeah. is your point. And, I, and, and when I seen that, I thought, wait a minute. They keep saying, well, we got to help our people. We got to help you, the people that yeah. don't have the money. And BS, they, they had more money than yeah. any, all the Republican people in the legislature. Appreciate the story, Dick. 
And then the other one that turns me is... No, I, I got you, Dick. I got to get going. We got to get to our last break of the evening. Appreciate the call. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Interesting little statistic pointed out by the Washington Times. President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, voted 93% of the time with his colleague, Judge Merrick Garland, who President Obama unsuccessfully nominated to the Supreme Court in 2016 when they both heard cases together on a federal appeals court in D.C. Senator Ted Cruz, Texas Republican, pointed out the statistics during Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing Wednesday. This is from back early last month dismissing some cries from Democrats that just Kavanaugh is out of the mainstream and Mr. Obama's pick for the high court should have been given a hearing and a vote. So, again, just demonstrating that, you know, as as callers have noted this hour, Trump could have nominated literally anyone and the reaction would have been the same. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. And so, of course, you know, what we have to recognize is the the left and the Democrats, they always have, they, they play a game of chess. They have contingencies for every possible outcome. They had a plan to win, and they had a plan to lose when it came to Brett Kavanaugh. And they are enacting the plan to lose. And they're pivoting straight to the election. And there's been there's been talk about how they're going to go they're going to try to impeach him they're going to try to impeach Kavanaugh now but they're trying they're trying not to focus on that right now and just focus on the election because it's pretty ridiculous to talk about impeaching a Supreme Court justice it it's only happened once before the house impeached i, I don't remember the exact context of when it happened that but the house has impeached a Supreme Court justice once before in American history the senate however exonerated him so it's something that is extraordinarily unlikely to ever come to pass, but there's a lot of people out there who would like to keep that idea alive, and it makes sense why they would, right? Because it's part of their new narrative now, now that there's a secure, theoretically, secure conservative majority on the Supreme Court, now they're shifting to this notion that the court itself is illegitimate. There's a piece over at uh, publicseminar.org, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, question mark. They talk about how, even before his confirmation, Brett Kavanaugh's petulant display of entitlement, in studied contrast with the simultaneously measured, difficult, and incisive testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, should have permanently removed the veneer of legitimacy from our Supreme Court and the constitutional order more broadly. And so then they go on to criticize the Supreme Court. They go on to criticize the Electoral College, the Senate itself. You had people tweeting over the weekend and even you know throughout this whole process about how the, the, the senators who are voting to confirm Brett Kavanaugh represent a minority of people because there's only, you know, there's two senators for every state and Republican senators tend to come from less populated states. And so we're supposed to, I don't know what we're supposed to derive from that. It's interesting to me because this notion, this notion that there's some sort of magical power in pure democracy. I'll tell you what, the Democrats, and there's, there's examples, I'm sure there's examples we can point to, no question. It would just take a little bit of research. 
It's not as though the Democrats would accept an outcome they didn't like if it was supported by a 50 plus one majority of the people. You know, right here in, in the in Minnesota, we've had ballot initiatives, constitutional amendments that have been put forward. But you go back to 2012, there was the, the marriage amendment and the voter ID amendment that were on the ballot. Both of them were defeated. But let's say that the voter ID amendment had passed. Do you think the left's response the day after Election Day would have been, well, the people have spoken, 50% plus one, were for democracy? No. They would have fought that tooth and nail. There would have been lawsuits. They would have been taken to the streets. So this notion that they there's something magical about democracy, and we need to make sure that 50% plus one of the voting public, the popular vote, matters oh so much as if they would have been warm and fuzzy, as if Trump had won the popular vote, the resistance would be called off. Give me a break. There's a piece out of the Wall Street Journal talking about how this has affected the broader culture. The confirmation battle over Brett Kavanaugh may be over, but the way it careened out of Washington and through the daily lives of Americans has left lasting marks. Jeremy Brandt, chief executive of WeBuyHouses.com, a Dallas-area company with more than 260 employees, watched employees go from observing the battle to having both healthy and unhealthy conversations about the hearings. Some, he says, turned into political proselytizing. At least once, he had to step into a heated debate to advise workers to tone things down. The nation's offices, factory floors, and break rooms, which have grown unusually rife with political discussion, have closely felt the impact of the Kavanaugh debate, according to interviews with dozens of working men and women. The stew of politics and gender made the moment notably personal. Some who normally shy away from politics felt compelled to weigh in. Many people ultimately found themselves seeking ways to navigate the debate and find common ground. At the end of the day, it's not about Kavanaugh hearings at all, said Mr. Brandt, whose company buys, renovates, and sells homes around the country. It's about people's personal experiences and how they relate that back to the hearings. And again, you know, I, I go to where how we started the hour, which is the weaponization of sympathy. People's personal experiences, and you, you saw, you could see this bear out in the way people reacted on social media, where you could tell who has had personal experiences that are biasing their, biasing their judgment one way or the other. You know, if, if you are a victim of sexual assault, if you went through something, then understandably that colors you, the way that you process what you're viewing and experiencing now. But that doesn't stand, you know, that, that is a bias. And the whole point of the justice system is to divorce exactly that type of emotional, experiential bias from the question of whether or not somebody is guilty or innocent. And let's not pretend for a second that this was just a job interview or a job promotion. This was a question of whether or not a man's life ought to be destroyed. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. There was something that our caller Dick from last hour had mentioned that kind of triggered a train of thought for me. He was talking about Obama and what it was like when Obama first came on the scene long before he was actually elected president of the United States when he gave that first big nationally distributed 
national spotlight speech at the Democratic National Convention, and it was apparent that there was something special about this guy. There was something magnetic about his personality, and that indeed he may be a future president of the United States. He talked about considering, you know, because he was a former Democrat, Dick was, and he talked about how watching Obama, he considered voting for it. And part of the motivation, part of the calculation for considering voting for Barack Obama was the notion that it might go some way toward healing racial divides. And when he said that, you know, I laughed because in retrospect, how ridiculous is that, right? I mean, Barack Obama's presidency, his two terms were, I think, beyond question, some of the most racially divisive years that we, that I've endured in my entire life, right? Like the, in the, in the almost four decades I've been on this planet, there've been no more racially divisive years than before Barack Obama took office. And he, he contributed to that. He did what he could to exacerbate racial divisions and to, and to lead us into a direction where we were less unified to create division. And it gets, it gets me to thinking about why that is and how it contrasts to, say, Martin Luther King, how it contrasts to the path that we could take, that could be taken to actually foster a real unity. Because, look, I'm a little sick of being angry. I'm a little sick of being frustrated. It's been a long two weeks. The end of September was just absolutely draining dealing with this Kavanaugh thing. And so I don't know about you, but I, th- I think it's time to maybe consider turning in a positive direction and contemplating what it would take to actually get us to a better point that we are now. Not to forget and not to become naive and forget that we are in a war and that the left is out to destroy us and all that we believe and hold sacred. That is true. That remains true. And we need to gird our loins and prepare for battle politically, and to defeat them utterly, electorally. But nevertheless, there needs to be a positive goal as well. We need to be happy warriors, as Andrew Breitbart exemplified. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Streaming at com and your Radio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Homeland taking those calls and producing the show. Ben Shapiro had on the Sunday edition of his podcast over the weekend, uh, Jonathan Haidt, who you may recognize as the author of a couple of books. He's got a new one out. I don't remember the title off the top of my head, but the one that he's best known for perhaps is The Righteous Mind. This is one that was promoted pretty heavily by Glenn Beck over this very air. And The Righteous Mind, of which I've read some, not all, but the, the basic premise, the basic thesis of the book is that everybody thinks they're good. Everybody believes they have the moral high ground and strives to, to frame their beliefs and their causes in moral terms. And he was talking with Ben Shapiro this weekend on Shapiro's podcast about this moment that we find ourselves in and about politics generally and you know what it, what it takes to advance a moral cause to be persuasive to convince people that you're on to something that 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 the time has come for a big change and to try to 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 earn people's support 
And he pointed to Martin Luther King as an example. And the thing that he noted was, and this is in contrast, because the, the whole context in which they were discussing this was the, the left that we know today and how it's defined by identity politics and how everything is grouped and categorized. You know, we, we spent last hour showing examples of how you've, you've got female leftists authoring op-eds in the New York Times and elsewhere speaking on behalf of all women and offering the, from the from the top down the female perspective on exactly what a woman a woman is supposed to think right now and exactly how a woman is going to vote from this day forward as dictated by them and 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 pitting everything in terms of women versus men, black versus white, rich versus poor. Jonathan Haidt and Ben Shapiro talked about the contrast to that, which proved effective in the civil rights movement. And that was Martin Luther King talking about us all as a brotherhood, talking about white brothers and black brothers and referring to those who were downtrodden, those who were oppressed as our brothers who have not yet seen the fulfillment of that dream offered by our founders. That was the argument that won the day. That was the style of argument that won the day. And the, the thing that everybody remembers about Martin Luther King Jr. is that I have a dream speech. That, that's what won the argument in the civil rights movement. That specifically. Not anything Malcolm X did. Not anything the Black Panthers did. Not anything, not, not riots in the streets, right? All that stuff was just background noise. The argument that won the day was Martin Luther King going before the nation and referring to us all as a brotherhood of men and saying, I dream of a world where my children will be judged based upon the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Where little black girls and little white girls will play together in unity. That was the that was the vision, and it was a unifying vision. And so, what can we learn from that? What can we learn? What can we take away coming out of this Kavanaugh situation? What positive direction can we turn in terms of you know having something to look forward to, having a sense that there is that there will dawn a new day, and that we can at some point in the future forge a new unity. Well, I think we need to be careful in terms of how we consider that question, because I think there's a desire, especially with all of the, the garbage that we've had to deal with these past couple of weeks, there's an instinctual and understandable desire to try to force unity, to try to force a sentimental unity where actual unity does not exist, to try to pretend as though, oh, it's, it's going to be fine. You know, there have always been people on the right and people on the left, and reasonable people disagree, and there's good people all around, good people on both sides. That is incorrect. That is wrong. And Jonathan Haidt is, is an example of this. He is, you know, he, he doesn't like to identify with a tribe, but his background politically is he comes from the left. He comes from liberalism. He would describe it as a liberal tradition, and he draws a distinction between liberal and leftist, and he's not the only one. There have been, and, and this is worth noting, this is worth noting, there are a number of people, Democrat or Democrat-leaning, 
commentators who have taken the time to make this distinction between being an actual liberal, a classical liberal, and being a hardcore leftist. There is a difference. And when they describe, when somebody like Jonathan Haidt describes a liberal in his terms, it sounds an awfully lot like a libertarian. Because he talks about how people ought to be free, they ought to be enabled and free to pursue their own values, that there ought to be freedom of, of exchange, freedom of exchange of ideas, freedom of exchange of goods. You know, and you know, this, in this way, he doesn't sound unlike somebody who you might have heard speaking at a Tea Party rally a few years ago. Yet, yet he calls himself Democrat-leaning, former liberal, former lefty. And that is indeed the, the liberal tradition. When we talk about liberal countries in, the, in a global or historical sense, that's what it means. It means to, to the opposite of authoritarian. It means libertarian, basically. The terminology has been corrupted over time. And so, you know, when we, when we contemplate this notion of what would it take for us to forge a new unity, this, the secret or the, the indicator is found in what Martin Luther King did in his recognizing that we do, we, we recognizing what we have in common and focusing on what we have in common rather than focusing on what separates us and what divides us and what makes us different from one another. And again, it's important to, to note that, you know, when we talk about finding the humanity in each other, finding each other's humanity, that's more than just a sentiment. That, that is an objective process. The, hu, humanity is an objective notion. Human nature is of a certain sort. Human nature requires liberty. It requires you to be free to choose your own values, to identify your own values, and to pursue them according to your own judgment. And so in order for us to recognize the humanity in others, we must grant them, we must respect the liberty that they are due as human beings. That's how we recognize the humanity in others. And when you, rec when you realize that, when you realize that this is actually an objective process, that it's not sentimental, that there's a science to it, that it has specific objective requirements, you realize that the left, the hard left, not, not liberals, but the hard left, is actually legitimately objectively incapable of seeing the humanity in anyone because they don't view people as human beings. They don't view you and I as free thinking humans driven by, by a rational, independent individual mind that identifies its own values and pursues them according to our own judgment. It's evident in the articles we've referred to tonight where they tell us what you're supposed to think because you're a woman or what you're supposed to think because you're black or how you're supposed to vote because you're a Native American or whatever category you find yourself in because you're gay, right? You, you, you will be prescribed the choice that you are to make based upon what divides you from everyone else. So if we're going to... If we're going to achieve, this is the, the bottom line here, the thesis statement from this whole segment. If we have any hope at all of coming out of this and turning in a positive direction and achieving the unity that so many people claim to want, 
and recognize the recognizing the humanity and the common humanity in all people we must defeat the left because they are the obstacle to that they stand fundamentally philosophically against that unity against the concept of humanity itself 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is Walter Atz Twin Cities News Talk AM 1130 FM Twin Cities News There are certain controversies and social uproars, social media uproars that I can get on board with and jump in and dive in and participate with. There are many others that come and go without striking much interest in me at all. And uh, one such was over the weekend where apparently Taylor Swift said some things that people thought were important for some reason. She endorsed a candidate for governor in Tennessee. Right. Which apparently evoked all sorts of anger and praise and various emotional reactions that just don't make any sense to me at all. See, here's the thing. When it comes to celebrities, I kind of look at it when I, when celebrities offering their political advice, I kind of look at it the same way I would any other form of advice. Would I go to that person? for their expertise in that field. Like, I'm not looking to Matt Damon to tell me how to change my oil, right, or how to how to replace an alternator in my vehicle. Because to my knowledge, Matt Damon is not an auto mechanic. Now, maybe he is, right? And if he was, if I learned that in point of fact, he spent his early years working in a garage for five years, and he said something about maintaining a vehicle, then I might take it seriously and, and take note. But to my, my knowledge, he has no special expertise in that field. So if he were to start, you know, go on Twitter and start offering unsolicited auto maintenance advice, I would ignore it. I don't quite understand why it's not the same way with celebrities when they start to pipe up and give us their political opinions. Like, this isn't their field of expertise, right? Like, these aren't people who are steeped in public policy you know, they don't have political science degrees. They don't spend. And look, I understand. I, you could say the same thing about me, right? Like I don't have, I don't come to this, this task of political commentary of news talk with any sort of magnificent resume in, in political science or government relations. I do. Yeah. Brad does. But the difference is, is that I do for at least, at least part time every day. Part of my job is to pay attention to this stuff, and so I'm plugged into it. It's you could say that I'm researching it on a daily basis for a significant period of time. So that gives, I'd like to think that gives me some amount of credibility that I'm at least taking a hard, long look at it, which isn't necessarily the case when somebody like Taylor Swift opens her mouth. Here's the story from the Chicago Tribune: Music superstar Taylor Swift announced Sunday she's voting for Tennessee's Democratic Senate candidate Phil Bredesen breaking her long-standing refusal to discuss anything politics. In the past, I've been reluctant to publicly voice my political opinions, but due to several events in my life and in the world in the past two years, I feel very differently about that now, Swift wrote in an Instagram post. Swift has faced criticism for not speaking about political issues despite having a global platform. Now, that is the sentence 
that convinced me that this was worth talking about on the show tonight. I don't care that Taylor Swift endorsed a Democratic senator in Tennessee. It doesn't matter to me at all. What I care about is that Swift has faced criticism for not speaking about political issues despite having a global platform. Because what that is right there, what that is, is that's the left telling her, arguing to her, shaming her, saying your celebrity has afforded you a platform and you are supposed to use it to advance our causes. And to the extent you don't, you're a bad person. Now, obviously the argument worked. Here she is endorsing a Democrat. But I'm, I'm try, I struggle to understand this, this appeal, right? This, this argument that Taylor Swift owes a, a leasing of her platform to left-wing causes in order to somehow justify herself. Here's a question. Why does Taylor Swift have a global platform? Why? What value does she offer that has attracted eyes and ears and attention and followers and fans? Strikes me that it doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with her political expertise or her knowledge of public policy or her prescriptions for who you ought to vote for. It has everything to do with her musical talent or at least people's perception of her musical talent. I wouldn't know. I don't really listen to her. But obviously, she's got something going on. She she understands how to work this show business angle, and that's how she's developed this global platform. So where in that process of being a performer, being an artist, providing a value and attracting a following, attracting customers, where in that process did she incur a debt to the left? whereby they now get to come in and muscle their way onto her global platform and say, you need to be out there speaking on behalf of political issues. You need to be out there endorsing our candidates. You need to be out there saying what you think about what's going on in the world today. No, she doesn't. She doesn't owe you a damn thing. Not one thing. Now, she's giving it to you, and I I can only presume that she's sincere in her motivations and her expressions, and so whatever, good for her, I, I guess. That, that she, she decided she wants to take this turn. I, it doesn't strike me as being particularly brave. I'm sure that she's, she's receiving accolades from the, these leftists who have been pressuring her and from at least some of her fans. Oh, oh, thank you so much, Taylor, for being so brave and coming out and telling us to vote for a Democrat. Well, I thought she never talked politics because she was conservative. She would never, I guarantee you, if she was going to endorse, endorse the Republican candidate or thought about voting for him personally, mm-hmm. she would ne- would have never, ever come out and said it. Well, and that's the other angle. I'm glad you brought that up because that's the other side of the coin of the pressure for her to come out and speak on these issues. Is what Part of it was, yes, they're trying to commandeer her platform. The other part of it was trying to sniff out whether or not, in fact, she's a conservative so that if they could determine that, like they have with, say, Chris Pratt and certain others who who have expressed quasi-conservative views in the public sphere from their from their platform of celebrity, once they've identified you as being less than a committed leftist, they can then engage the shame campaign and, and potentially the boycotts and, you know, calling you a horrible person because... You're, you're rich and famous and not utilizing that in order to 
affect their social and political agenda. All right, let's uh, let's come back to Dennis when we come on the other side of the break. We'll go to the bottom of the hour break early here. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. Find us on Facebook. Do a search for Closing Argument with Walter Hudson right there in a Facebook search engine. Our page will pop up. Give us a like. Set yourself to be notified when we post, when we go live. We live stream the first segment on the show on a nightly basis. Started that last week. It seems to be working out for us, so we're going to keep doing that for you and uh, trying to get other content out there as well. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omland taking your calls and producing the program. Let's talk to Dennis in Uptown. Thanks for holding. Hi, Walter. Uh, First-time caller, uh, but a long-time listener. I just want to say something about you. I love listening to your program. You are an exceptionally clear thinker, and you're logical and balanced and... Yeah, well, that's that's it in a nutshell. I um, appreciate it. Yeah, no, I I, I really appreciate your voice. Uh, so I wanted to say something. You know, there's um, this, and you know, we're talking about the how rabid the mob is. Mm-hmm. But we've seen this throughout all of history. You know, armies, whether it be you know Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great, you know, you know they would come into a village and they would say to the the men join us or die. Right. And so they would have to they would have to participate in whatever war campaign they had right. going on. Right. Um but more recently, you know, we saw this in um something more akin to what's going on today. We saw the Cultural Revolution in, in China back in the seventies where Mao Zedong had mobilized uh this this mob and people either had to be uh you know they, they either had to join the mob um, in destroying other people and institutions mm-hmm. or be caught up in it. Right. And the the objective wasn't to make China a more functional place. No. The objective was to harm others and destroy institutions. Right. And we see that today. It's, yep. It's absolutely evil. Absolutely, and we need to stand up to it. I appreciate your call and those great insights. That is one area I should do more reading in regards to Mao's China and the Cultural Revolution, because that's definitely a a uh, fog of war in my historical knowledge, and I'm sure it's quite apropos to what we are experiencing today, uh, as noted. Let's talk to Mike in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Say, so I got a question and then a follow-up comment. Um, out of the local news affiliates here, in your estimation, which, which of the four would be the most left-leaning? You know, I would have to be watching them. <laughs> and, and I really haven't. You know, I, I don't know. I, I guess if I, had to, if I had to put a guess on it, uh-huh. I would say it's the local CBS affiliate. No. CBS. Okay, interesting. No? Carol Evan. Okay, yes. well, there you go. Yes, by far. Um, but, yeah, I bring that up because um, out of the four tonight, uh, three of them within the top five or so stories uh, carried the story about this Samantha Ness, um, who decided to uh, 
threaten a federal judge. Uh huh. And right. The yeah. The the, one, the teacher from Rosemont who uh, put out the tweet asking somebody to kill Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. 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 Um, and then uh, the aforementioned uh, Carol Levin, it is MIA. It ain't, it ain't even on their website. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and you can imagine if it was somebody who, some teacher from like a private school or a Christian school who would put something out talking about, uh, why don't, let's get another justice by uh, knocking off Ruth Bader Gingrich, right? Like that would, there would yeah. be a holy hell unleashed. And we, you know, you and I, have, you and me have discussed this uh, in the past, but but again, how do they turn the lights on and broadcast the signal with a straight face? You're, you're not you're not presenting the news. Yeah, it's, it's just uh, I can't wrap my head around it. How you know how you can claim to be a news agency yeah. and then completely just oh, yeah. you know what person makes that decision? Whoop, right. we're not touching that one. Right. Appreciate the call, Mike. Appreciate the thoughts. That that reminds me of a story uh, that we have in the stack here. I was going to get to it a little bit later, but let's bring it up now because Mike's call brings it to mind when he talks about the unwillingness of the media to report the actual news and to 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 do what they say. Because that's the thing is the whole the whole imagined premise that they claim to operate under is that you know, we speak truth to power. We bring the we inform the populace. You know, we are the dis, the distillers of truth. We cut through the spin. We offer you the the raw information so that you can make informed decisions as you go to the ballot box. From the Daily Wire, socialist candidate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has a hard time explaining, well, anything. So when she appeared on Friday on MSNBC, host Chris Hayes lobbed her the softest of pitches. Hayes, who rightly predicted the Democrat will win her heavily liberal district in New York, asked this simple question about what Cortez will do once she gets to Capitol Hill. What's your plan here? He asked. This was her response. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with changing our strategy around governance, you know? There is a lot of inside baseball and inside the beltway, as you know, you always hear that term thrown around, but there are very few organizers in Congress, and I do think that organizers operate differently. It's a kind of strategy, and what it is really about organizing, really thinking about that word, organizing, segmenting people, being strategic in their actions, and really bringing together a cohesive strategy of putting pressure on the chamber instead of only focusing on pressure inside the chamber. That was her answer. Joseph Curl writing at Daily Wire says, huh? The the research arm of the Republican National Committee mocked the answer, and uh, they described this as being a word salad, a jumbled word salad. Now, I understand the desire to mock Ocasio-Cortez, but I think that I think she actually says something in there. She says it poorly. She obviously articulates it very poorly, but she is saying something that's extraordinarily noteworthy, and that properly ought to be reported on by our journalists who claim to be speaking truth to power and trying to bring us the unvarnished truth. She talks about organizing, right? She wants to bring her organ. And this was Barack Obama's thing too. He was a community organizer. Remember that was his, his resume bullet point. I'm a community organizer. And we all asked ourselves, what is that? What does that even mean? Well, what it means is you're the person who puts together 
things like Antifa. You're the person who puts together the protests. You're the person who puts together the street rallies and what have you. You're, you're the one who organizes that kind of stuff. So when she talks about bringing organizing to Congress, she literally uses the words segmenting people. You know, we talked last hour or earlier at the top of this hour, we talked about what it takes to unify people. She's talking about segmenting people. She's talking about segregation, treating people differently according to the arbitrary demographic categories that they fall into. And then she talks about being strategic in those organizing actions, those segmenting of people to bring together a cohesive strategy of putting pressure on the chamber. So what she's saying is, is that she wants, she wants to agitate. She wants to divide. She wants to bring identity politics into the chamber of Congress in order to apply pressure, the same type of pressure that was applied to Jeff Flake during this confirmation battle, same type of pressure that was applied to Lisa Murkowski and to uh, Susan Collins, that type of pressure she wants to bring in, in onto the, the floor of Congress. That's what she wants to do. Well, you talk about segmentation and targeting people based on their demographic information, and that's a common marketing technique. Like every one of the, what, 12 stations now that we have here at iHeart in Minneapolis is designed to target a certain type of person. Like ours is older men age, you know, uh, over the age of 45 who probably maybe work a blue collar job or a, or like a middle management job. Whereas KDWB is younger. Anyone six to 26 is in their demographic. And those are just the, a way to sell advertising and have a clear picture of who the advertisers are selling to. And so what these community organizers are doing are picking and choosing the issues or at least presenting them in different ways for these different demographic groups to care about. So I guess I understand the concern with that and how like arbitrary and dumb it is because their causes aren't they're just man this is just manufactured ultimately that's i mean that's branded and advertising is is manufactured hype really you could distill it down to that and that's what this lady is doing but i'm not gonna call it unconventional or radical or uh out of line because that's just all it is. It's just advertising their points. Except it's it goes beyond just marketing to attract. It's it's not like she's just campaigning. She's talking about how to pursue policy and of course the content of what that policy is. She's pursuing an agenda that very specifically and intentionally treats people differently according to the categories that they fall into. We just got done going through this whole process whereby Brett Kavanaugh is guilty of sexual assault, not because we know he's guilty of sexual assault, but because he's a white privileged male who went to a, a, a highfalutin school and has a privileged background and therefore gets to stand in as a scapegoat on behalf of other white privileged men who we presume have done bad things to women in the past. In a similar sense, Ocasio-Cortez's politics is all about punishing people and rewarding people based upon the categories that they fall into. Sure, yeah, that shouldn't be the result of policy, but that may be the result of organization. And whether that, whether the, it's kind of a chicken and egg, chicken and egg argument, you could say, like, 
are politicians separating us based on arbitrary demographics because community organizers have demanded it or community organizers realize that politicians are willing to do this and so they organize in favor of that the this brought to mind when i was thinking about ocasio cortez the fact that she's still she's being interviewed on msnbc here right and she's been interviewed by other outlets how many journalists of the likes of chris hayes have really truly pressed her on this Medicare for all thing. You know, there's, there's another article here in the stack about Medicare for all and how Democrats are really on board with it and are going to be pushing it uh, for the, this final month of the midterms and going into 2020. How is Medicare for all, you know, if your job as a journalist is to report the truth and to give us the information we need in order to make informed decisions, why are you not pressing these people on how absurd the idea is? There was a CNN anchor, was it Jake Tapper maybe? who was pressing her on the issue and made her look like a fool. It didn't get that much press because right, in the conservative media, because it was on CNN, and second, right. because it made Ocasio-Cortez look bad, so the liberal media is not going to pick right. up on that. But she has been pressed by at least a few people in the media, and it has gained some attention. Well, this is, this is what I'm going to say about it. Ocasio-Cortez or literally anybody talking seriously about Medicare for all ought to be treated exactly the same way as you would treat somebody who was seeking public office, promising that we were somehow going to be able to, to, you know, power our cars with unicorn farts, right? Like it's the, you, it should be the exact same reaction. The, the idea that we're somehow going to harvest happiness at the end of the rainbow, and that's my policy for Congress. That's my platform for, to run for Congress. It should be treated with that level of absurdity because the idea that we're going to implement a policy that is going to cost over 10 years $32.6 trillion, that that's somehow going to happen in reality is so absurd that you ought to be disqualified for public office, and if you're not willing to ask that question of anybody who seriously advocates for it, you should be disqualified from journalism. 651-989-5855, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. If you act quick, you might be able to squeeze in a comment before the end of the show. There's a couple of pieces here that, that kind of go to the cultural side of this war that we find ourselves in. And I, I started the top of the hour trying to be positive, trying to pivot towards something positive in the aftermath of the Kavanaugh drama that we've all endured over the past couple of weeks. And the best I was able to conjure was the notion that as a prerequisite for unity, you know, that we, we need to identify the source of a potential unity in our society. And that source is our common humanity. And, and our humanity is, is not something sentimental, it's something objective. It's human nature. And human nature requires a very specific thing in order to thrive, and that's liberty. And so in order to embrace our common humanity, we must be for liberty, 
which leads us back full circle to having to defeat the left because they stand against all of that. So, you know, that was my effort to be positive and ended up circling back around to defeat the left, defeat the left. So, you know, hey, best I can do under these circumstances. Well, there's a couple of examples here of just how how this emerges or manifests in the culture. First one here from Intellectual Takeout. Can a society which welcomes diversity find room in its group hug to embrace truth? One would think that the answer should be yes. After all, if every person, idea, or viewpoint is allowed, then why not truth? Sadly, the answer seems to be no, at least according to the Alberta Department of Education. As the Calgary Herald explains, private schools, which include a reference to the truth of God's word in their anti-bullying statements, are facing a loss of funding at accreditation. The unchangeable and infallible truth of the word of God allegedly violates that phrase, allegedly violates the school act requirement that diversity must be respected. In the document sent to schools, the word truth is highlighted in yellow by the government and a color-coded document now nicknamed the Rainbow Reprimand. Good Lord. (laughs) It's put together by people who are in positions of power. Everything highlighted in yellow contains language which suggests alternative viewpoints are not equally legitimate, which is disrespectful of diversity, states the NDP government. Now, think about that. So the word in question is truth. The word is truth. And by highlighting in yellow, what the government is saying is that that word, truth, suggests that alternative viewpoints are not equally legitimate. Well, yeah. Like, that's the definition of the word, right? Like, if something is true, then an alternative to it is false and therefore not equally legitimate. And so what you're saying is, this this is an astounding admission, an unwitting admission, no doubt but astounding nonetheless. What they're saying is, is that diversity as they define it is complete and utter nonsense. That it's of of use to no one and has no practical value whatsoever. Because of in order to respect diversity, I have to abandon truth. Then there is nothing of value in diversity because there is the, the entirety of value this is both a feel what I'm about to say is both a theological statement and just philosophically true. It bears out in every application. There is no value outside of truth. Truth is the entirety of value. Everything of value is encompassed within the dimension of truth. And so the idea that there's some there's some legitimacy outside of truth or alternative to truth that I have to respect. And that thing, whatever it is, is called diversity. If that's the if that's what it is, if that's what you're bringing to the table, I have no interest in your diversity. I have no interest in it. It can't possibly be of value to me if I have to abandon truth in order to embrace it. On a similar vein from the Daily Wire. A professor at the University of Southern California has come under fire after sending a reply-all email last week to the student body stating, accusers sometimes lie. This, of course, is going back to the Brett Kavanaugh situation. If the day comes you are accused of some crime or tort of which you are not guilty and you find your peers automatically believing your accuser, I expect you find yourself a stronger proponent of due process than you are now. Professor James Moore wrote in the email. He finished saying, Accusers sometimes lie. 
Now, in response to this, the dean there put out a statement saying that what Professor Moore sent was extremely inappropriate, hurtful, and insensitive. All the guy said was, <laughs> we need due process. An accusation is not enough. You actually need to have some sort of evidence to substantiate an accusation. That was deemed insensitive and inappropriate. We are in full-blown crazy town. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.